Well, we have this chapter, Acts 13, in front of us. A non-Christian thinker and writer once said, not about the, the gospel or particularly, but he wrote this. In times of drastic change, and who can deny that we're in those days this, at the moment, in times of drastic change, it is the learners who inherit the future. The learned find themselves well equipped to live in a world that no longer exists. It's a very, very profound thing he's saying. It's the learners who inherit the future. And that's true for us as Christians. We are meeting here, we have God's word open in front of us, not to just feel nice at the end of it, but that we might learn what God has to say to us. And that's Sunday by Sunday. And it's those who will learn from God's word who will inherit the future. Now you know the beginning of Acts, um, Jesus gave an outline of the way the gospel would spread. You shall receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Then you go through the Acts of the Apostles, chapter 2, they're in Jerusalem. That's the first phase Jesus spoke about. about. When they were arrested, before, before the authorities and told not to preach in the name of Jesus in Jerusalem, they, the apostles replied, we... Uh, um, the authorities said, we strictly charge you uh, not to teach in this name. Yet here you've filled Jerusalem with your teaching and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. They'd filled Jerusalem with the teaching of Jesus. Then in Acts chapter 8 verse 1, there was a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem and they were scattered throughout the region of Judea and Samaria, except for the apostles. that now went to, this, to Samaria and Judea. Then Acts chapter four, Acts chapter eight, in verse four, it talks about Philip who went down to Samaria and he preached the gospel. Then you come to this passage, Acts chapter thirteen, where the going out to the ends of the earth begins. So you have that framework, that sort of strategy that Jesus said would happen: Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the ends of the earth, and you can see it running right through the Acts of the Apostles. Now we're reaching. The, the fulfillment, at least the partial fulfillment of the last phase going out to the ends of the earth. And it's the start in chapter 13, verse 1, of the first missionary journey of Paul that we often think about. It's exactly as Jesus predicted. Now, I want you to notice something because there's a lesson for us to learn here. God has a strategy for his church. He has a strategy for his work. And he is working out that strategy. That strategy in the course of centuries, millennia, that strategy will be fulfilled. And it is for our good that this strategy is being fulfilled. But when they were fulfilling the strategy Jesus mentioned in the Acts, sometimes, as in this passage, it was because they decided that that's what they would do, guided by the Spirit. Other passages, they were passive. They scattered because of persecution that arose. But whether it was through persecution or whether it's because they decided that that's what they felt they should be doing under the guidance of the Spirit, they were fulfilling the strategy that Jesus predicted. And I think that's helpful for us to remember because there are times when we, guided by God, are being told uh, we, we feel that we know what we ought to be doing. Here's a part of the world that needs to be reached. We see the needs. We dis 
see the people who haven't heard the gospel of Jesus. And we decide that's where we should focus our attention. An individual may do that, a church may do that, a prayer group may do that. And they decide to do it. That's wonderful. But other times, it's much more difficult because people involuntarily are moved to different parts of the world. And it's tough and it's hard for them. You know, some of us may never ever move from the house that we're in now. That is to say, we're living in now. We don't have the freedom to go to other places, other parts of the world. I've just had the privilege of being in Lancashire and overseas just the last few days. But you have these, some people may have these opportunities. Others may not have them. You may never move in your ministry far from the kitchen sink, if I can put it that way. But you know, all of it is part of fulfilling a strategy that God has for his church to reach the ends of the earth. And that's what's said in the book of Isaiah, in the prophecy of Isaiah concerning Jesus, who was, of course, the servant. And there are those servant songs in Isaiah. And in chapter 49, one of those servant songs, speaking about Jesus, says this. Before I was born, the Lord called me. From my birth, he made mention of my name. He made my mouth like a sharpened sword. In the shadow of his hand, he hid me. He made me into a polished arrow, arrow and concealed me in his quiver. And he said to me, you are my servant. In other words, there were, well, Jesus didn't start his ministry until he was how old? 30. Is that true? It's not really true, is it? We say that, I say it. He started his ministry at 30 and he died at 33. He had three years of his ministry. But actually, what about those previous 30 years? In a carpenter's shop, hidden away. That's part of his ministry too. We don't read about it in in the scripture. We don't read about what happened and how he made tables and chairs and mended people's plows and whatever it was. We don't read the details of that. But he was as much part of God's plan in the in the carpenter's shop as he was when he was out on the streets ministering to the people. And uh, if that's true for Jesus, as I'm sure it is true for Jesus, then it's true for us too. Hidden away sometimes, unseen, unknown. But we need to catch a vision that whatever our circumstances are, God is at work in us to fulfill his strategy. I remember when my mother first had bifocal glasses. I have very focal glasses now, but when she had bifocal glasses the first time, she was constantly doing this to try and get everything in focus. You know, the top half was focused for long distance and bottom half for reading and so on. Sometimes we need to see the local close-up, whatever it is that we're doing, in the light of the big picture. We need to see them both in, in place. You may never have the privilege of be called by the Lord to be a missionary in Turkey or wherever it might be, or China or Africa somewhere. That may never be your ministry. But your particular sphere of operation, your particular sphere of work is as much part of God fulfilling his strategy as any other. And therefore we need to have that sense of dignity about it. So, There's a challenge for us all in there. And then Jesus said, of course, when he sent out the uh, disciples and the church started, you will be my witnesses. 
and I'm sure he had, amongst other things, this chapter, Acts 13 in mind, where it speaks about the first missionary journey, journey start, starting. We need to say, see, the receiving of God's Holy Spirit as we become Christians, because as Paul says in Romans, anybody who doesn't have the Spirit of Christ is not, does not belong to him. We need to see that the giving of this Holy Spirit that we have as believers is to fulfill Act chapter 1, verse 8, you will be my witnesses. You're as much called to it as anybody else. So it's a challenge, isn't it? You see your daily walk, your daily ministry, the, gr the daily drudge for some, daily grind as part of the command to reach the ends of the earth. But it was. Of course, in the Old Testament, the commands given by God, very largely in the New Testament, become promises. You shall, you shall, you shall, the commands of the Old Testament. In the New Testament, they become promises. You shall, you will. And that's because of the Holy Spirit who is given unto us. And you shall be my witnesses in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, is not only a command, it's a promise. You shall be my witnesses, wherever you go. This is what's going to happen. This is the promise, the ends of the earth. So, Acts chapter 5, Jerusalem was filled with the word of God. Acts chapter 8, Samaria, revival broke out through Philip. Acts chapter 19, verse 10, it says that Paul argued concerning the gospel and this continued for two years until all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord. Can you imagine that? Through Paul's ministry. Um, in this mission that we've had in Blackpool, um, because of the problems and difficulties and the press and persecution and so on that was, well, we didn't feel as persecution, the people against it and so on, I, I took the trouble to look up Wesley when Wesley went to Lancashire. And I jotted down, I wrote, got an extract from his diary. I'll read a few sentences to you. Wesley's diary when he went to Lancashire. This is, in case you can remember it, it's Wednesday, October the 18th, 1749. He says this, I rode, rode at the desire of John Bennett to Rochdale. That's Lancashire. As soon as ever we entered the town, we found the streets lined on both sides with multitudes of people shouting, cursing, blaspheming, and gnashing upon us with their teeth. Perceiving it would not be practical to, to preach abroad, I went into a large room, open to the street, and called aloud, Let the wicked forsake his way, and the unrighteous man his thoughts. By the way, not many of people would do that today. The word of God prevailed over the fierceness of man. None opposed or interrupted. There was a very remarkable change in the behavior of the people as afterwards we went through the town. We came to Bolton, also Lancashire, about five o'clock in the evening. We'd no sooner entered the main street than we perceived that the lions at Rochdale were lambs in comparison with those in, Bo in Bolton. Such rage and bitterness I scarcely ever saw before in any creature that bore the form of men. They followed us in full cry to the house where we went and as soon as ever we got in, took possession of all the avenues to it and filled the streets from one end to the other. After some while, the waves did not roar quite so loud and Mr. P thought he'd better then venture out. They immediately closed in, threw him down and rolled him in the mire so that when he scrambled from them and got into the house again, one could scarcely tell who or what he was. 
When the first stone came, uh, came among us through the window, I expected a shower to follow, and the rather because they had now procured a bell to call their whole forces together. But they did not deign to carry on the attack at a distance. Presently, one ran up and told us that the mob had burst into the house. He added that they'd got hold of J.B. in the midst of them. They had, and, had laid, and he had laid hold on the opportunity to tell them of the terrors of the Lord. Meanwhile, D.T. engaged another part of them with smoother and softer words. Believing that the time had now come, I walked down into the thickest of them. They now filled all the rooms below. I called for a chair. The winds were hushed, and all was calm and still. And this is a sentence I like. My heart was filled with love, my eyes with tears, my mouth with arguments. They were amazed, and they were ashamed. They were melted down. They devoured every word. Oh, what a turn it was. Oh, how did God change the counsel of old Ahithophel into foolishness and bring all the drunkards, swearers, Sabbath breakers, and mere sinners into that place to hear of plenteous redemption? Next day, this was on the third, next day, they had some follow-up meetings starting at five in the morning. Abundantly more than the house could contain were present at five in the morning to whom I was constrained to speak a good deal longer than I'm accustomed to. Perceiving that they wanted to hear, I promised to preach them again at nine in a meadow near the town. Thither they flocked from every side and I called aloud, all things are now ready, come to the marriage. From Matthew 24. Oh, how have a few hours changed the scene. We could now walk through every street of the town and none molested or opened his mouth unless to thank or to bless us. Great stuff. It puts some fire in your belly and strengthens your backbone reading stuff like you. We ought to read more of that sort of thing. But you know, in the, tr- the, the troubles that we have, I mean, Paul calls the troubles we have as light momentary afflictions. Momentary, they're just passing. God is fulfilling his particular strategy. So back to Acts 13. Here they are in Acts 13, and verse 1, it says, In the church at Antioch there were prophets and teachers. By the way, notice the distinction between the two. They are separately. They were not prophets who were teachers. Prophets and teachers, separate. Two different things. Prophets in the New Testament were those who spoke to build up the church. They spoke under the inspiration of God's Holy Spirit to guide the church. Paul says of prophets in two Corinthians, uh, in one Corinthians fourteen, he says they are given for the edification, exhortation, and comfort of God's people. Edification, of course, means building up, edifice, and all that. So that's what they're for. Not so much the foretelling; it's not that sort of prophecy, but forth telling the heart of God. And then there are teachers. Teachers, their ministry is not so much a guiding ministry, but it's a grounding ministry. It's laying foundations that will be remain firm and strong, line upon line, teaching the people through the scriptures so that the church as it's being built remains strong and steadfast, come what may even the sort of persecutions and problems and difficulties we've already already mentioned. It's laying the foundations. Jesus told that story of the two men who built houses. Do you remember? One built on sand, one built on rock. Then he interpreted it. 
we, we sometimes sing songs about building, wise man built his house upon the sand and all that. It's used to, but not so much these days. But you know, what is the rock on which we're built? Well, Jesus tells us that the rock is hearing the word of God and obeying it. That's the rock. Those who build on the rock are like those who hear the word of God and obey, says Jesus. Now, if the work of the teachers is not there, the building will quickly, can quickly rise up and grow, but when the pressures arise, it will come to nothing. Or to change the metaphor, the parable of the sower, the seed that falls in shallow ground, Jesus said, it springs up, they receive the word with great joy, and it springs up quickly. But when the sun arises, it withers and it comes to nothing. It's the laying of the foundation or putting down deep roots. Now amongst these prophets and teachers, some are mentioned by name in Acts 13 here. Barnabas. Name means son of encouragement. That's son of consolation, the old versions have it. Barnabas. He was the man who, who first helped Paul when Paul was converted. And because Paul had been persecuting the church, the church didn't want to accept that Paul had been converted. They couldn't believe that it could possibly happen. And it was Barnabas who came alongside and encouraged him and took him to the church and introduced him to the church and got the church to accept him. That was Barnabas. Later on, he did it with John Mark, his nephew. So that's Barnabas, a man whose gifts and ministry were in the area of encouragement. Then Simeon, Simeon called Niger. This is probably, we can't quite be certain, but it's probably, almost certainly, the Simon of Cyrene who carried the cross of Jesus. His Simon from Cyrene, and so did that one come from Cyrene. A black man, he's called Niger here, a black man uh, by the way, Cyrene is in modern Libya, um, that part of North Africa. He had two sons, Rufus and Alexander. They're both mentioned in Scripture. You can read about them in Mark 15 and Romans 16. And in Paul talks about um, the mother of Rufus, who also helped Paul and uh, was a mother to him, he says, in, Acts, in Romans 16. So that's Simeon. Then there's Lucius, also Cyrene. We don't know much about him, but do you, I wonder, do, do you, if Simeon went back home after carrying the cross of Jesus, and Jesus couldn't carry it and put it on Simon, he carried the cross of Jesus. You can imagine if it, when his life being changed, and he goes back to Cyrene, and he finds his mate uh, Lucius, and tells him about it, and he became a Christian. We don't know that, but it's not stretching the truth too far. Maybe he was uh, a friend of Simeon. But there's Lucius. Then there's Menaean. Menaean mentioned here. He's brought up with Herod the Tetrarch. Now that's very significant. He was actually the foster brother of Herod. In case you've forgotten, the Herod dynasty, the Herod family, was a lovely family. Herod the Great was the one who got them to kill all the babies at the birth of Jesus. Lovely act. Wanted to get rid of one of them because he thought it might be a threat, so had all the babies of the, of the town put to death. Lovely 
act. Then there comes Herod Antipas, his son, Herod Antipas, son of Herod the Great. Antipas, which is the Herod mentioned here, Antipas was the Herod who mocked Jesus at his trial and had him dressed in purple robes and his soldiers mocked Jesus. That, that's Herod Antipas, this Herod here. And uh, he was the one who got Jesus, uh, got um, John the Baptist's head chopped off, uh, beheaded. You can read about that in Mark chapter 6. Um, that's not the Herod who, at the beginning of chapter 12 in Acts, had James put to death. That's another Herod. It's all part of the same dynasty. They're all lovely people, aren't they? But this is Herod here, and, and it says that Menaean was his foster brother to Herod. Now, that's significant because it, it, because it means that in Herod's family, there were believers. Not only that, there's a very interesting fact. I, I don't know whether you've ever thought, how did Luke, when he wrote the gospel, um, how did he get all the facts about what happened in Herod's thinking? For example, at, uh, Luke 23, about... The, when it talks about Herod longing to see Jesus because he'd heard about him and, uh, and says quite a bit about Herod's thinking and so on. How did he know all that? I mean, it's not, you don't normally go up to the, the king and ask what they think so that you can write a biography. But it says at the beginning of Luke that he did careful research. But where did he get his research information from? I think I know. can't prove it, but I can think I know. Because... Herod had a chief of staff who ran his household. That man's name was Husa, or Chusa. Husa was chief of staff of Herod. He's mentioned at the beginning of Luke chapter 8. But he was a married man, Husa was. And his wife's name was Joanna. Joanna was a wealthy believer who not only followed Jesus, but she provided the money to support the apostles as they, as the disciples, as they went about and, and support Jesus as they went about preaching and teaching. Read about it in the first few verses of Luke chapter eight. She financed the disciples and financed Jesus in his three years of ministry, and she was wife of Herod's chief of staff. Can you imagine? the discussion over the dinner table when Jesus' trial was coming up. It would have been Husa's job to make all the arrangements for that and to make arrangements for Jesus to come before Herod, make all the arrangements for the trial to take place and the interview to take place and so on. It, that would be part of his job. And he could be discussing that, this man up on a capital charge and there sitting at the table was his wife who'd financed this man. Very interesting. Now, why is that significant? Just this, that you remember when Jesus was put on trial before Herod, and he appeared before Herod, it says that Herod asked him all sorts of questions, but Jesus did not speak a word. Why not? I think it was because Herod knew the truth. He's got a foster brother who was a, uh, became a believer. He got Joanna, who was a follower of the Lord Jesus, through Husa his chief of staff, I think Herod knew the truth. And he'd shut his mind to the truth so that when Jesus was put on trial, he had nothing to say to him. And that's important for us because if we don't 
heed God's word and obey God's word when God speaks, we need to be very, very careful. Because there could easily come a time when God says, that's it, I'm not saying any more until you act on what you know. Ever wonder why you don't think God leads you? Don't know where you're doing and what you're doing and so on? Maybe it's because God has spoken and you never acted upon it. Well, he, uh, Menaean, was a foster brother of Herod the Tetrarch. So, these are the people in the church there in the church at uh, Antioch, etc. Now that's the beginning of the story of uh, how this first missionary journey came about. Paul was then mentioned as the last one on the list, Herod the Tetrarch, and then Saul, as he is called here. Saul was uh, one mentioned there in uh, the church there in Antioch. Name Saul means requested or asked. Remember the story of the Saul in the Old Testament. They asked for a king and got Saul. But Saul, that's what it means, requested or asked, and it focuses on the self. But when Paul was converted, he changed his name to Paul, which comes in verse 9 of our reading a little bit later. Paul, who's also Saul, who's also called Paul. The word Paul means little. You can't help wondering if, thought, uh, if he thought to himself, I don't like the name, the one who asks all the time. I'll just change it to a more suitable name for me. I'll call myself Little. And he called himself Paul, who was Little. And he, early in his ministry, Paul says, I'm the least of all the saints. And towards the end of his ministry, he says, I'm the chief of all sinners. The closer he got to the Lord, the more he realizes he was a sinner. Like the Pharisee in the Old Testament and the story, in New Testament story Jesus told, who stood up and says, I thank God I'm not like all these other people, not like this sinner here. And there was this poor man, a publican, he got up and said, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. And Jesus says, that's the one who's justified. Paul realized that. We need to humble ourselves before him. So anyway, this church group of people, it says they were ministering to the Lord. What it literally says in verse 2, our translation has they were worshipping the Lord, but it actually says ministering to the Lord. Ministering to the Lord as they met together. The word is liturgia, which means, from which, from which we get our word liturgy. They were ministering, ministering the Lord there in um, Acts 13 verse 2. We're called to offer a sacrifice of lips. Phil has already referred to it in prayer. Uh, called to sa offer a sacrifice of lips that acknowledge his name. And King David in the Old Testament once said, I will not offer unto the Lord of that which costs me nothing. If it's costly to meet to worship on a Sunday morning, pay that price. We are called to bring the fruit of lips. That's what our sacrifice is. Worship is a sacrifice. It's costly. So they ministered to the Lord, not just ministering for the Lord. The highest ministry that we have is ministering to the Lord in worship and prayer and adoration and thanksgiving and praise. Sunday by Sunday when we meet here. That's our highest calling. To meet together, to worship the Lord and to minister to him. 
The highest thing you can even do in your Christian life is to meet together with other believers to worship the, the Lord. Now, as they did that, the Holy Spirit said, set aside for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I've called them. Those who ministered to the Lord were being called by the Lord to work for the Lord. Initially, Barnabas was the leader. It says there in verse 3, it set apart Barnabas and, and Saul for the work to which I had called him. He was the leader of the group at that particular time. But later that was become difficult and Paul, from verse 9 onwards, it becomes Paul and Barnabas. Paul took over the leadership. They actually fell out with each other a bit later on, but that's another story. And uh, you say to yourself, well, how did the Lord, how did the, the Holy Spirit set them apart. How did they know that? Well, that's where the ver verse 1 comes in. The prophets and teachers. Through the ministry of the word, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, God spoke to them and said, set apart these two for the ministry to which I have, in, uh, I have called them. Later, Paul was to say to Timothy, don't neglect the gift that you have that was laid, given to you when the Elders laid their hands on you. In fact, he says, where the prophets laid their hands on you. And later on he talks about the elders laying hands on them. It certainly wasn't an easy thing, but that's what he was called, they were, uh, he was called to do, to be set apart. Timothy was set apart. And now these men were being set apart for the ministry that the Lord had called them to. In other words, they just didn't decide that's what they do. They were being set apart for the Lord. Ministry. So what did they do? Where did they go? Well, they went to Cyprus. Cyprus. Now, why to go to Cyprus, of all places? Well, that's because that's where Barnabas came from. He came from Cyprus. You can read about that in, in Acts chapter 9, the, the, the last chapter of the verse. He was from Cyprus. So though God had set them aside, they must have wondered, well, where, where, where did we go from here? I feel God is calling me. Where do I go? And he just took the well, why don't we go to Cyprus? Because I know that island. It's such a needy place to go. We'll go to Ireland, to, to Cyprus, that island where I come from. And so they, they went and uh, began the ministry of the word there in Cyprus. The Lord gave the inspiration. The church gave support and direction. And they went in a common sense way to a place that they knew was a place of need. Cyprus was the center of the worship of Venus, Aphrodite. I won't go into all the background, but it included most immoral practices. They had ritual prostitution and all the rest. Every man on the island was supposed to go to the temple, engage with the prostitutes there. Everybody visiting, all the sailors and all the soldiers who visited the Roman League, they were all expected to go there and participate in it. And one of the contemporary historians of the day looked upon Cyprus and says, the women of Cyprus are unbelievably sad. No wonder. No wonder. And when they decide, trying to decide where to go, no doubt Barnabas said, well, I know a really needy place. Let's go to my home island. We'll go there. And they did it. They just went. I think it was David, David Bradford, who was speaking the other day about the ship. You can't guide the ship when it's at a standstill. Can't guide a bicycle unless you're moving either. You can turn the wheel, but it won't go anywhere unless you're moving, and then you can, be, you can guide it. As they were trying to know where they should go, they just did the common sense thing. This is where we'll go. And as they went, God led them 
one way or another. Once you sense God's call, just do it, says Nike. They were sent by the Spirit. They went to the Salamis in the east with John Mark. John Mark was one of the daughter of one of the wealthiest women in Jerusalem who used her home for the apostles after at the time of the resurrection and so on. And then they went to the other side and they met this strange character, Elimas. Elimas. And it says that the governor from that area, Sergius Paulus, he wanted to hear the word of the Lord. He wanted to know what God's word had to say. And uh, he was being stopped by this man, Elimas, who was possessed by evil spirits or guided by evil spirits, no doubt. Paul had to look at him in verse 8 and say that he was going to be blind. He sensed something that was wrong and knew that it wasn't right and he defended that man and he, to, so that Sergius Paulus could hear the word of the Lord. And then we finish this passage. Paul wasn't going around zapping people in the spirit or anything like that. It was simply that he knew what was right and said it. And the proconsul became a believer now, just notice this as we finish. How did he become a believer? Was it because of the great miracle of, of Elamas being blinded? No, it wasn't that. He said, I want to hear the teaching of the Lord. Verse 11. When the proconsul saw what had happened, he believed, for he was amazed at the teaching of the Lord. And we need to take that to heart, that it's as we share God's word, that people will turn to him and say, that's what I want. That's what I need to do. And I want to be obedient. So the missionary journey, first missionary journey, begins to get underway. Not through huge, fantastic arrangements, but by people being obedient to God's prompting in the local church, doing their thing, doing the practical things so that God could lead them step by step. And the rest of the journey, which we're going to look at as the time goes by, You'll see that happening again and again. Let's close our time with prayer together. Father, we thank you for this passage of Scripture and how relevant it is for us, to, for us today. We pray that you will teach us through it. Help us, we pray, to have that sense that God is at work in us here at Abbey. That through the teaching of your word, through the those who have gifts and abilities that share with us and us, each one of us is open to the Lord, learning together from him that we might be led by yourself, that we might see our ministry as part of fulfilling your great plan of reaching the ends of the earth with the gospel until one day we stand in your presence and round your throne we worship you. We pray that you will use us therefore even today as we step out from this place and as we go our different ways now. May your love, your grace, and the abiding presence of your Holy Spirit go with us, not in a passive way, but in a way to lead us forward to be the people you want us to be. We ask it for Jesus' sake. Amen.